Welcome to Thriving Perspectives, and thank you for taking a moment in your day to join us, hear our stories, and discover new ways to embrace thriving. I'm Terry Dubroy, founder of Thrive Enabling Potential, and today we're not just diving into another episode. We're taking a reflective journey through the highlights of this incredible year. In hindsight, 2023 was a remarkable year. We launched this podcast in August, and since then, we've been having so much fun recording and sharing all these stories and hearing your feedback on the things that resonate with you. Our goal in beginning this podcast was to speak with people from many walks of life who have learned to embrace the art of thriving in unique and diverse ways. In every conversation, we have found ourselves learning so much more about the true nature of finding the high road in life. And if you've had a chance to tune in to any of the episodes, we trust you gleaned wisdom that you carry forward on your path for many moons to come. Today, we will share a short highlight clip from each to the episodes recorded in 2023. Although many moments in each episode stood out and had much insight to offer, these moments in particular encapsulate the essence of thriving. For each highlight clip, the episode title and timestamp will be noted in the description. So if you listen to a particular clip and would love to hear more on that clip, head to the description to find the whole episode. Our team will be taking a break for the holidays, so this will be our final episode of the year before we return in January 2024. Thank you for being a part of this thriving community, and with that, we invite you to zone in and immerse yourself in some of this year's highlights of Thriving Perspectives. Enjoy. There's something, Tony, that you love talking about, and I never get bored of listening to you talk about it. And it relates to what it is, what our relationship is um, to comfort zones. And it yes. seems like it's a, a common new age word to use, but I just appreciate the way in which you talk about it. And I think it'll really help to encapsulate a lot of the things that we've been talking about so far. Sure. Let's take a second, because I don't think we can talk about a thriving mindset without talking about comfort zones. You know, it's funny because when I began teaching in this world of facilitation, you know, over 25 years ago, the term comfort zone was not mainstream for sure. And I think it's become mainstream. It appears in lots of sitcoms, all kinds of things like that. And I think the sad thing that has occurred is it's become more mainstream, is that it's lost a little bit of its power. And so because it's said so much, it becomes a bit cliche. And yeah. I think it's one of those things that in certainly in this conversation and when we do our shared work, we take great effort to dust that off mm-hmm. and to help put it in a shiny place again because uh, it's one of those things that holds a lot of power. So let's let's dive right into this for a second. We would characterize your comfort zone as being the place in which you feel comfortable doing something that feels effortless for you. So when you can do something without truly having to think about it at all, we would say that's something that lands firmly in the domain of your comfort zone. And that comfort zone is highly personal to you. So things that might be in your comfort zone might be highly scary or anxiety producing for me and vice versa. 
And so we have to remember as we're thinking about comfort zones that we could be standing beside three other people and we could have very different interpretations of what that means. For us, what that means though, is that the comfort zone is meant to be a place where we um, recharge, where we go back to be able to reintegrate kind of the learnings that we've had as we ventured outside of our comfort zone. It was never meant to be a place to live, right? Now, however, there may be people listening who deal with extreme anxiety or go through periods of that in their life. And certainly we understand that there are moments where you got to make your life a little smaller, right? And that you need to kind of get inside and take good care of yourself. And that is a good moment to be inside the nest of your comfort zone, to be warm, comfortable, safe, and well looked after, and not to have too much newness, um, you know, on your plate. However, when we think about going beyond our comfort zone, and we imagine it as being a circle, and we're standing in the circle of that comfort zone, I want you to then imagine that there's a larger circle outside of your comfort zone. And we call that your learning zone. And your learning zone is where all new things occur. So if there's something that's unfamiliar to you, to you or something that's new in nature, that is something that lives in your learning zone. So when we find the courage to leave our comfort zone and embrace the opportunities to adventure in our learning zone, people often have a little bit of a physical reaction or some forethought about, oh, this feels really nerve wracking for me because this is really new territory and it feels really strange and I don't know. And I often tell people that people should be thinking in their heads that sometimes there's a physical, tangible reaction that we feel in our body when that happens. Some people uh, kind of, they trip on their words. Some people, they're feeling like they've got the butterflies in their stomach or they get the wobbly legs or, you know, a headache or a stomach ache. And those are messages from our body saying, hey, that's new. And as human beings, we protect ourselves in our ancient brains because we were designed to take good care of ourselves so we could survive. We're not living in an age where there are saber-toothed tigers hiding around every boulder, right? And so we can reprogram ourselves a little bit to understand that not all new things have to be scary things and they're certainly not fatal things. So our failures are not fatal. And so putting ourselves in a position of learning and outside a position of comfort does not mean that those uh, failures are fatal. Those failures, as we discussed earlier, are the ingredients of our future greatness. Those are the things that assist us in growing as human beings. And over time, our comfort zone just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, you think back to when you were a six-year-old kid and the things that were inside the realm of your comfort, uh, probably driving a car wasn't one of them. Probably rock climbing wasn't one of them. Probably writing a university level essay was not one of them for most people, right? So as we kind of progress beyond those kind of realms, uh, we've got our learning zone. There's one zone left to tell you about. I'm going to tell you about really shortly. There is a zone that often people, uh, certainly as I was being mentored in this work, uh, described as being the panic zone. This is that idea of we're going to teach someone how to swim and as the old adage goes, we're going to throw them into the deep end. Off the dock you go. I hope things go well and you'll figure it out on the way down, right? And we know that this style of learning 
is not highly productive for people. Um, it can create feelings of long lasting anxiety or trauma. And those things do not allow people to come back to that activity in a healthy way. Uh, and we set additional obstacles for people as they move forward. And so um, we approach that area with some respect, I'll say, rather than caution. Um, we understand something really clearly about that threshold between the learning zone and the panic zone. Because we've spent a lot of time there. We spent a lot of time with participants in high stress environments where either we're in a place that is a really dynamic environment, like a thunderstorm on a canoe trip, or we're midway up on a rock climb and people get to that point where they're like, I can't, I can't go any further. And we tell them beforehand, understand this. When you get to the place where you feel like you can go no further, expect to hear our voice in your ear in a really gentle and compassionate way reaffirming that that's the threshold that's that place where great things happen and when we tell ourselves we can't and we step back that's okay sometimes but the more we do that the more we give ourselves to retreat from that feeling the more we program our brains and let our brains know that when we have that feeling i automatically surrender i back up right as opposed to having the support of caring people around you maybe you're able to take one more step in that direction. Maybe you're able to reach up and reach that last climbing hold or one more. And in doing so, you reprogram your brain. You break the program. Time and time again, we've received positive feedback from our participants. But how a simple shift from their normal or city-type environment to a more immersive experience in nature helps to trigger profound transformations in themselves and as a collective group. Yeah, we know for sure after having done this for a super long time, you and I uh, and our team, that the, the real magic happens when we're able to leave the context that we're familiar with, right? So when we're able to escape the confines of the office or the building that we occupy, whatever that looks like for us, and are able to kind of relocate to a novel setting, really remarkable things happen. And that's by design. You and I both know that that's an important part of the experience is to allow people to step out of their everyday circumstances and settings and surroundings and to be able to disconnect really intentionally from the busyness and the noise of the other things that are going on in life so that they can focus on some really incredible new things and that reinvention most powerfully happens when you step into that novel, unique setting. And so we're really, really good at creating through our shared work, those mindfully engineered pattern interrupts that help to kind of get people out of their ruts, invite people into some places where they can stand and look at themselves and glimpse aspects of their greatness, right? So it's really exciting for us whenever we get to use uh, the natural world as a teaching partner mm. and to be able to bring in those elements that we know add incredible value yeah. to people's experiences. Yeah, we, we really enjoy using the metaphor of shifting gears and finding that way to just make something change, make something happen. You know, to make something ordinary to the extraordinary involves those type of things. Yeah. It can't be more of the same. 
No, and you know, we were looking through some photos not too long ago where uh, some of the favorites of ours over the years, and it, the thing that strikes me about so many of the best photographs that are my favorites is that they're often pictures of people looking <laughs> at a beautiful sunset or something like that. And it's not even so much the sunset that captures you. It's the look of awe on the people's yeah. faces that you can't even see. You can perceive it through the backs of their heads. Their bodies are captured by wonder. Yeah. yeah I can't say I feel like I'm leeching from the experience, but being there and seeing that is worth so much. Yes. You know, where the eyes open up and, you know, it, it's almost like, it's like hearing someone taking a, a deeper breath, mm -hmm. maybe a fuller breath could be the way to look at that. Yeah. You know, I think that's a big part of our role as facilitators and the experiences that we weave is that we hold space for people in beautiful spaces. Mm -hmm. And so when we put people in front of um, things of wonder, it, captivates people's attention and in doing so people inadvertently start to disconnect some of those threads that are kind of tugging at their awareness from back in the world outside of that activity experience or event yeah so what led you to pursue higher education and how has your time at the university kind of shaped your perspectives? So I've always been really curious about things. And when I was in school, I knew that I wanted to pursue like a higher education. So coming here to Canada also helped me with that because I knew that I wanted to keep learning and just, yeah, learning more about different stuff. So now I'm studying biotechnology and the degree is about learning how we are shaped to the molecular level and the cells, how they work, and also learning different techniques that we can use to learn more about those processes and structures. So I was always really curious about how the reactions in our body made us and how we are able to just do everything that we do in our daily life. So I think that this degree gives me the opportunity to learn more about how our bodies work and how we can solve different things that happen in them. Yeah, I love that because I know you to be a deep thinker. <laughs> and some of the topics and questions that must arise at university must really get you pondering and thinking about things on deeper levels. So how do you approach exploring these complex ideas? So I think that I ask lots of questions. Like when I find something that I don't really understand, I try to just go deeper. And I always ask like my professors or my classmates, it's just like, hey, why is this going like that? And why do you think that this relates to what we're studying? Um, yeah, I think that I'm really curious about some like some things that I find weird sometimes. Mm -hmm. And most of the times I have to stop myself because I can get like really like overthinking stuff yeah. and just trying to like get to the first part of that thing. And it's just hard to get like all the answers that I want. Mm -hmm. So I also learn to take a step back and be like, okay, I need to have a bigger picture right. of this and then I can dive 
But that higher order questioning, though, is so important to be able to continue to move forward in your discipline, in mm -hmm. your area, suggesting, I think, passion and excitement for what it is that you're doing. It also sounds like you're surrounding yourself with the things that you need, giving yourself a set of circumstances to allow for you to come to positive outcomes. Is that something that you've always had or is that something that you've fostered over time to improve on to make sure that you can surround yourself with what you need? It took me a while to get to where I am now. So I didn't always have like a support system that I was like comfortable with. So it just took me time to get there and surround myself with people and a situation that allowed me to grow. Kind of sounds like an everyday experience too. Isn't the parallel very similar between what it is that you're setting yourself up for school really just sounds like the things you're setting yourself up for in life. Yeah. That deeper curiosity, that wondering of things. You know, I have had many discussions about those things about, you know, kind of the what is what to life. And what are these things about or what are those the dynamics to things and as you said suggested earlier the most important thing that you need to foster and cultivate is the relationship you have to yourself yeah. you're the one who's with yourself every day mm -hmm. so that's the one that really does need to be fostered and to nurtured and to give it the care that it needs to be able to grow and to do that well and you're right it does take time right and for those who are listening to this it's such a it's not we can't overstate it it's so important that we do these things. It's so important that we take the time to cultivate that and also to find the things that we're passionate about in life and to find the things that we're successful at too. I, uh, I got one for you. Maybe, maybe you've heard this one before and perhaps other people at home uh, who are uh, teachers, leaders, educators, so on. Uh, facilitators have done this, but you can uh, you can actually get people to say, close your eyes, please. And people get used to that, or they do in my class, as an example, is um, ask your question, what is your understanding of something? And five is the highest understanding, the fist is the lowest. I just ask that we don't know each other well, that they would withhold the middle finger for the number one, <laughs> right? And everything else, we're going to work out just fine on things. And it's incredible how well it works because then you can get a real answer from folk yeah. who are more willing to share because they're not being uh, judged by anyone else in the room. Yeah, that's a great way of doing it. And so, you know, eyes closed, ask your question, then they'll rate it. And then you know to find them later and say, hey, okay, let's spend a little bit more time on that. Yeah. And then you can do that in... Uh, in ways that are a little bit more subtle so they don't feel centered out on yeah. those things too. Yeah, because so. there's definitely a ton, there's a lot of students that never want to be centered in front of mm. everybody, right? Yeah, because I can't remember who the theorist was, but he had an analogy that was what are people's willingness to share? And he looked at it from a poker chip perspective or playing a game of poker that everyone has a different stack of chips that they have and the way in which you play will depend on the size of stack that you have. So if your stack, your emotional resonance yeah. or your shyness or your introvertedness, perhaps as an example, 
and, I, and I'm only using this as just an example, is that uh, you're not as willing to play a short stack, but someone with a larger stack is much more willing. So that extroverted person oh, or someone great. who has less cares necessarily is more willing to gamble yeah. on things wow. and put that out there as opposed to the person that's holding on tighter to their short stack. That's amazing. I'd never heard of that before. Yeah. And so that resonated with me and I'm sorry for not remembering to give credence to who that was, but it'll come later. It will. Yeah. And uh, so, so it's a nice way of looking at that. So we all have those different, different things that are within us about how we go about the things that we do. Yeah. So if we can do things that can include as many people as possible, like a simple, idea of closing your eyes and just writing that just you can go about that but you're so right though that physical part to communication yeah is really important you know when i cross my arms sometimes i catch myself i'm like dude yeah i do the same thing yeah but i i'm like you it's like why are my arms crossed right yeah. now? What am I? What am I? What, yeah. am, I, what am I holding on to? Maybe yeah. I should drop my shoulders a little bit. I think yeah. I'm holding on a little tight right now. Yeah. Right. Why is that? You yeah. know what I mean? Oh, right. Okay. It could yeah. be because of this, this, Cause this. Because I, yeah, because I do the same thing. Always kind of thinking about, like, and we all have our little, th- little subtle things that we do like that, right? Yeah, that's right. For but, sure. And I really think that with your, in my experience, th- your body language should almost come first right because then it opens it opens everything up i think yeah but oh i'd agree and yeah perhaps a part of that and i think we've been talking about it already is the importance of um how you manage your room yeah right that classroom management yeah that's an epically important skill yeah you know? and it's not there's no perfect equation you know i gave a we i was giving a french seminar a couple weeks ago with another teacher and they asked us, how do you set up your classroom? Mm-hmm. I set up my classroom the way I set up my classroom on mm-hmm. that specific day. I'm, I'm always ready to move things around. Yeah. So it's, and I go based off of my students' needs, what I'm teaching. Right. So to, there's no perfect formula. And we were trying to you know, teach that to the other teachers that were at this seminar, that there's right. no perfect way to set up your classroom. Yeah, you're right. Because it might work. And there, we might give you that perfect recipe that you think, and it'll work for two years. And then all sure. of a sudden you get a class sure. that yeah. doesn't work anymore. Right. I mean, some people randomize or even just do the alphabet or you let people sit where you want or yeah. there's so many different things about yeah. those, right? But you can't get your first day back, right? No. So, you know, you can get all these awesome laid out yeah. plans, these Uber plans and yeah. yeah, I got it all set up and I got, you know, I'm going to have this set up and I'm going to have this yeah. You know, this square that my corners set up for different activities. Yeah. Just all these awesome things. But what it really comes down to is how are you able to start it off and to do it well enough that kids, okay, kids as adults can be a little bit judgy. Yeah. I mean, even oh. I'm sure even as I'm talking, you're thinking about some things about the things that I've said or so on. I'm not saying you're judging me, but yeah. but you are processing the things oh, that definitely. I'm seeing you're, and you're thinking about yeah. those things, right? Of and, course. And, uh, you know, to my best of understanding, when I was younger, perhaps yeah. I wasn't as fluid in my thoughts or not as thoughtful in my thoughts. Yeah. And maybe I would just stop short in that thought. And yeah. so I know that when I'm standing in a front, and this is actually for any group of people I'm in front of. 
This could be hundreds of people that I'm talking to, or it could be a small room of seven. And those first few moments are interesting. Yeah. You can't get those back. No. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm sure they're always different. It's never been the same. Yeah. Right? The that feeling energy, is always a little different. The energy is always a it little is. different. It is. I think the, what I'm trying to convey doesn't change, though. What I'm no. looking at letting students know about is yeah. that you, and perhaps we're similar, I don't know, we're going to find out, is, and for me, it's a part of the thing that I say, what I exactly say, no chance is the same. <laughs> but what what is what the feeling is, yeah. is pretty darn similar. I am no better than you and you are no better than me in any yeah. way, shape or form, but yeah. you have your student thing. I have my teacher thing and we've got to find good synergy. Yeah. We've got to grow the respect that we have for each other and we need to find a good place for us to exist. Yeah. Right. But we're, I'm no better than you. No, exactly. Way, and right? that's having them feel like they're level with you, I mm-hmm. think is so important. Because they're just doing what they know at that time within their own life, right? Exactly. And the point of us talking and sharing right now is we come, you know, I'm much older than you. Yeah. But our similarities are striking. Yeah. So why should that be different then that when we look at who's in front of us is finding some common ground about who we we have, we want good things. Yeah. And as a young person, and I... I still remember, and I still feel this sometimes to this day, you just, you want to be validated. Your opinion, you want to be validated as a kid. You just want adults to validate you. Like just because you're 35 years old and I'm 14 doesn't mean that what I'm saying is irrelevant. That's right. I might have some good ideas. Yeah. And just respect what I'm trying to say. That's right. and bring across and, and, and give right. value to what I'm yeah. saying. So it's setting up that set of circumstances for positive things to exist, right? Yeah. So about uh, a year and a month ago, we lost our one-year-old son. Yeah due to Sid so he just and I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a of the story behind it and it's it wasn't beautiful at the time but now I see it as a beautiful story we essentially went to our family cottage on the 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 Friday before he passed away and had the most beautiful day at the cottage and it was the last day of exams i believe so or no last day of exams would have been the thursday so on the friday i think you have that day to just do report cards right and it was an awesome day might have left work a little earlier than i was supposed to get to the cottage pick up the kids off we go and i remember sitting there with my wife looking at the dock thinking we're here now. We've, my son was now a year old, a year and a bit. And I felt like we are finally over that hump that you have with babies where you can't do as, you can't do things as easily as you did before or you do with a toddler, right? Because there's all this packing that you need to do and whatnot. But I felt like we had just made it. 
And I just told her, I'm like, this is, this is paradise. And I actually texted my mother-in-law on that night. And I said, this place does wonders for everybody. Hmm. I texted her that, I think at 10 o'clock at night. And then we woke up the next morning and then we found her son had passed away. Which was terrible. And we had to make our way from, we were on a, on an, on an island. So we actually had to transport my son from that island to the mainland because that was the quickest way that we were going to get the help that we needed. And once we got to mainland, my wife had to take my oldest son away because we didn't really want him. And he's at the time he was three and a bit. So we didn't want him to realize what was going on. So she just kind of took him away. And I stayed with my son, Drew, who had just passed away until the first responders showed up. Then once the the first responders show up, I'm there and, and he's doing his thing to try and, and help us out as much as, as we can. And eventually he just said, you have to go with your wife, which I thought was awesome that he did that because... I think in that moment, if I wouldn't have gone to my wife, it might have created a friction of some sort that might have not led us in the right way as a couple down the road. So I went to see my wife, and then eventually the ambulance showed up, and I still remember doing this with my wife, and I don't know why I thought about doing this, but I just grabbed her and I said, just so you know, the best thing that we do in our lives is be parents. We had nothing to do with this. We didn't, yeah. we didn't mess up. This is just, we didn't, me- and I don't know why I thought to do this. Yeah. And I just held her by her face and looked her right in her eyes because I wanted her to re- just to understand that we were going to be okay. And... I don't know if that's just strength that uh, that my dad gave me to be able to do that or yeah. what happened, but I just really wanted her to understand that we were going to be okay. And it, we sent him away, and then we we went home together. And then ever since that day, we've just been... We've been grieving together but we've learned that you also need to grieve alone. You, She grieves in her own way and I grieve in my own way and then we grieve together as well. And I think that's extremely important because gr- you can't lose your side of grief. And I'm, I'm a person that likes to just take as much l- emotional load as I can from anybody because I'm just like you, Terry, I'm able to take on that load. Yeah. Because I'm able to process things mm-hmm. just like you that I th- think there's not too many people that are able to do. And it's not, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but it, and I think we were just born that way. We just yeah. were fortunate that way to be able to process those emotions. So, and that we did therapy as well, and I'll get into that. But my worry was that I was going to get into a state where I didn't, completely go through my own grief because I was just trying to help my wife and help my mother who was grieving and help my mother-in-law who was grieving too. And I, and I remember my, when we started doing, we did our first therapy session the next day. So the next day this, we called this therapist and she's like, I'll come to your house right now. 
and she came to our house or to my mom's house because we were staying there for a little bit to get the support that we needed Mm -hmm. and she started talking about how we were feeling and the only thing I was talking about was how I felt bad for the first responders and I felt bad for the police officers because I felt like it was my, like it was my son that had passed away. So it should be my grief. Like no one else should get that, that grief, right? It should just be me and my wife because it's our, it's our son. So I felt so bad. And I felt like at the time on that day, I had just like my life was, was changed and my wife's life was changed, but I had just, our lives had just changed the lives of these first responders that were there. And then the therapist just said, why are you worried about them? Yeah. You just went through something like that's their job. That's what they signed up for. They know that there, there's a chance that that's something that's going to happen. They're, they're going to have resources and Mm -hmm. things in place to help them deal with that. You need to stop worrying about, others and start worrying about yourself yeah and in that instant on that second day if i if we wouldn't have had that therapy session on the second day and we would have waited i probably would have started in this cycle where i'm not processing my grief right and then i'm sure some listeners know if you don't process your grief properly that leads into some pretty terrible vices right and I'm just very fortunate that we were able to get that support and we do, we got that support from from my mom my and her mother and my mother-in-law as well they were both there to to guide us and to push us to do thing to to get things going right off the hop because it's kind of like that first day in class right if if you mess up that first day, it doesn't set you up for success. But yeah. for me, that first day that I lost my son, we set each other up for success. And then that just oh. kept the ball rolling f- for where I'm at right now. And it, it not every day is easy, of course. We still no, have our struggles. Not at all. But yeah. on that first day, we it was like, it's like habits, right? It, it was just, we developed good habits right off the hop. And I think that's helped us tremendously in dealing with our grief. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. While you're out on the trail um, and you hadn't seen anyone on the north end and you're quite far away from any help at all, perhaps share some of your thoughts and feelings about that journey. Because as someone who has also been a part of that it's it is it has some physical difficulties for sure carrying your home and everything you need with you is taxing but really it's it's a mental game yeah i i found like after the first night it was like scary for me and after that actually having the backpack on and like carrying it it wasn't that hard comparison to that kind of fear because i'd Mm -hmm. i've i do a lot of workouts whatever i play sports and i'm very i'm comfortable with kind of that pain already um and so that was a big it gave me a lot of confidence to carry my pack but being alone was something that i hadn't experienced a lot of and so i had 
at that point I was still like, I was just afraid, honestly. And that was a really different experience for me. I thought a very irrational feel, fear, but I thought there's going to be like a bear coming out or something. And I didn't want to on day three in a, in a sense, Yes, maybe perhaps not the same, but similar. Yeah. First day, second day, and even third day. Yeah, but I think that was definitely the turning point for me. Yes. When I got to the campsite, that was the literally it was the turning point too. Mm. It was the farthest campsite I'd be. Why why is that though, David? It's the same for groups. It's something we say time and time again. Groups come together on day three, day four. People get it sorted out day three, day four. I guess it's the motions that we need to, it's, I don't know if a purging is correct or leaving things behind and staying in the moment because the mind wants to give itself the excuses that it needs to feel that comfort as opposed to being the comfort, like right in those moments and being in a state of acceptance for those things. I've been pondering this for decades, David. I'm not going to pretend to think I know exactly what that answer is, but I do know it takes time to feel good. And for you, Day three seemed to be that turning point for you. Yeah. I I don't know. Maybe it was, again, the like the physical part of being like, this is the turning point. From here, it's all going to be okay. I'm going back. Yeah. Um, Turn the corner, so to speak. Yeah. And just being having the time, having the time to be alone with yourself. Maybe there's something special about three or four nights. Mm-hmm. But it there was for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so no, I think there's something in that, you know, why David, it's just constant. It's, it's measurable. It's perceivable. Yeah, the, the, uh, this year, um, well, I turned th- over 3,500 kilometers in a boat and, um, and thousands of nights. And I, I just think it's what our brains need. It needs to release and accept there's something it's like a calmness almost that comes over us when we're in a state of acceptance and perhaps you felt a little bit more of that calmness come day four. Oh yeah it just like you were saying like i feel like we really try to hold on tight to all the comforts we had before and maybe it was when i started like just accepting where i was um that i started to let go of the fear and the stress mm-hmm. um and experience it a lot more feels real right it does it's 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 real all of it's real and that rawness but there's an acceptance of what that experience is a little bit more and you can be it's not like a viewer of it anymore you're like i I, I am i'm doing this i am this i am doing my work i am a part of these things i am with everything beautiful around me and then i can't necessarily control yet I'm at peace with that too. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful lesson, actually. I think um, a lot of people could learn from that, from an experience like that. So you hit day four. What did your, what did your last, uh, what, did, what did the tail end of your trip feel like and look like? And, and how, how was it so different? Yeah, well, um, I felt a lot more comfortable. I had like the first few days I was, I could feel it like stress. Um, and I wasn't that hungry, um, or that thirsty or anything. Oh, that's interesting. 
yeah, all the was, things you really need too. Yeah, it was like it's tough those first few days, but it it wasn't unbearable, right. not even close, and it uh, it just kept getting better. That's the thing. Uh, well, I don't even know if I want to say that. Okay. Maybe it it, it got sunnier, which mm-hmm. was lucky, but I just got better at kind of dealing with it and accepting it um over the time being immersed in it and so it really became enjoyable it's so interesting like i think other people could maybe someone hasn't done a solo backpack maybe or with a group maybe someone hasn't done something so arduous or so difficult it it is it's plainly said it's difficult it's a hard endeavor it takes a lot of a lot of effort right like many things are right so perhaps another way to to look at it is it, how long does it take until your bum accepts a, bi- uh, a bike seat, right? To get back into biking again after you spent some time away from it or or to be a part of other things, right? I mean, uh, something you and I talked about even before you went, and I think you can embody it. Patrick McManus wrote a, wrote a book that I enjoyed many, many moons ago, and he referred to backpacking as a, a fine and pleasant misery. I thought about that many times. <laughs> when I was on my trip. Isn't it true? Like from your perspective, describe that because it's like a, it's like a, it's like a positive negative, but more positive. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't know. It's like maybe we, uh, I think it's all in your kind of attitude towards this. So you think it's like kind of a misery because maybe you're not around a lot of people or it's cold or it's a little bit wet whatever but it's it's really so positive at the same time mm-hmm. and i think that all comes from kind of your attitude towards it mm-hmm. and like just kind of for me like mm-hmm. m- when my attitude changed kind of on that on that third uh, night was when everything started to become more positive i remember jill like my first my first time as it related to my company working as a guide and having a group with me and a couple other guides with me too that I was paying. And it was amazing to look around and I was thinking in my head, every paddle stroke is like, that's a dollar. That's another <laughs> dollar. This is like, oh, like what? This is, is this, is this canoe heaven? Is this mm-hmm. like, so that's where things were. It was this awesome translation from learning all those new things, wanting to be a part of them and sharing them and getting paid for them because uh, I wanted to surround myself and be a part of the things that make me super passionate yeah. and super happy. Then why did you decide to leave that then if that was something that lit you up so much? I understand that you decided to go back to school yeah. as a mature student. Yeah. Um, can you describe the transition to university, what it was like to go to university in your mid-20s and leave that behind? It's always been about challenges for me, Jill. Yeah. You know, I really welcome challenge in my life. I yeah. don't, I, I, I see things as, as bumps and not big mountains. And mm. I did when I was younger. And again, high school taught me that and how I could formulate a different way to to think about things to allow for further positive things to happen in my life and 
the better mindset to have to activate a new set of circumstances, you know, to make things really great, especially in, uh, in an outdoor setting. Yeah. It must've been such a challenge considering that it took you a while to finish high school to enter university. Mm -hmm. That must've been a big mental challenge for you, but for the positive, I'm assuming. Well, I, I have to thank setting myself up for success. Yes. And again, in high school, it did that for me. I, I took the time to think about what I wear and how yeah. I could go about things and setting goals and how I could realistically achieve those goals and what are the things that I needed to do to help with that. And to just kind of back up that question a bit, I decided that before I would get into that, that I was going to challenge myself to take as many different forms of transportation across Canada on my own as a way to navigate that next step. Yeah. And it started off with a hot air balloon ride. Actually, as I was working my way across the country, Jill, I would make some money in, in some aspect of guiding or in an outdoor pursuit or something that I was just super interested in trying and so I really wanted to do those things you know and push myself into those areas and as I was doing that to always remain honest with everyone about the things I was doing but so the first one to go hot air ballooning it's kind of cool I mean I I don't know anyone who's been in a hot air balloon (laughs) but you (laughs) well yeah I, 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 I looked in the newspaper that's what you did when you wanted to find a job there was no internet at that time looked it up in the paper and Buddy's like, hey, I'm looking for a uh, hotter balloon, uh, someone to work in the, uh, in the chase car and then whatever it was. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go for that. And I, those who know Ottawa, this place called Lansdowne. So the, the hot air balloon was there and I, I parked the car and I actually saw the early beginning inflation of it. And I went over, I can't remember his name, but I just went over and, and eventually I got to the owner and he said, Hey, Terry, you won't believe this. This is actually your lucky day. You're going to get to uh, go up in the hot air balloon. I'm like, no. He's like, yeah, <laughs> you're going to get to go up in the hot air balloon. And I thought to myself, this is amazing. Like this, really? Okay, cool. So, and I remember the feelings more than anything else. And I certainly remember a couple of views that I'll talk about in a moment, but I remember the anticipation and the excitement for it. Yeah. Because it's something that I know when I'm about to, I'm on the threshold of something really cool and yeah. exciting. I always get that type of feeling and I really trust in that feeling. So it's one I know well. Next thing you know, I'm in the hot air balloon and it slowly does its lift off. And you hear that sound where it's the heat's rising up and we float up and we're up. And next thing you know, we're up and we're near the Rideau River and the wind kind of changed course and it went by where the parliament buildings were and the sun was rising at that time mm-hmm. and it had that beautiful pinky color to it as well like pink red mm-hmm. and then floating along the Ottawa River and we ended up on the Quebec side in the Ottawa Valley and so we went for about an hour and a half float it was just pure magic and I think the crash landing is 
easily one of the coolest parts about it all too. <laughs> and it's not something that people imagine when they think of a hot air balloon, no, but how the heck does the thing stop? It's not like yeah. it goes, oh, beautiful touchdown, boof, nice, nice soft touchdown and <laughs> everything's nice and easy. You know, it does not happen. It kind of hits the ground and then it's a deflation and a drag, like a mega drag wow. on the ground and works its way over. Yeah. So I got out of the balloon, the chase car came over and said, Terry, how was that? And I, I was very emotional and, and I looked at him and I said, uh, thank you so very much. And, uh, and I'm sorry if this is going to disappoint you with my next words, but I also quit. And I thanked him and I told him my story and he said, listen, this is something that I've always wanted to do. And after about five minutes time, he went from anger to happiness because mm. he gave me time to to explain myself and uh, we gave each other a hug and I thanked him for being an amazing human being to understand that but that was really the launch of that solo adventure across Canada I think we would both wish for more uh, mindfulness and present moment awareness but it's not always in large supply. No. And so I think that, you know, as it relates to leading others, that in the places that I've seen that done the best and certainly the places that I've, you know, had the opportunity to be in a workplace, when there's the feeling that things are a community, you know, and I, there's been many workplaces for me that have been like that and I've been really blessed that way. It's that spirit of kind of reflection and and self-discovery even yeah for sure and sharing back to people um the things that you see yeah. and the things you appreciate about them and feel yes because when people feel appreciated you can do a lot more you know when you feel unappreciated and you're tired yeah. it's really tough to not feel a bit trodden upon and i think as it relates to kind of the retention of staff and the creation of positive kind of inclusive communities, mm -hmm. that's where the magic lies is mm -hmm. to be able to help people reflect and to create a culture of appreciation. Right. And it's something you and I both know from a personal development standpoint yes. that the key to happiness is for people to be able to see beauty around them, mm -hmm. right? We've all met people who have on the outside the appearance of having every living thing that you could have, money, privilege, opportunity, and yet are distinctly unhappy. Mm -hmm. And most of those people, if you put that under the microscope, are people that have not developed a culture of appreciation and gratitude in their life. Mm -hmm. And they are unable to see the beautiful things that are around them. So when you talk about success, and we so often do, success is such a subjective thing and is different for everybody. But so often we think about success being the money, the cars, the homes, the prestige, the all those things. And so many people, you know, that we've had the opportunity to meet with who have attained all those things and feel empty still. Why is that? Because they're unable to see the beautiful things in their life. They're just on a quest for more 
and better. And that's a really dangerous proposition as it relates to happiness, right? Yeah. Because it's an unending hunger. That's right. Yeah, it really is. Right? And so I think that is the thing for me that was such a, a powerful and beautiful gift. It's something I strive, and I know you do as well, mm-hmm. to, to give to our own kids and to the young people that we have the opportunity to spend time with is that we know that helping people to create a framework for appreciation and gratitude mm-hmm. is the best thing we could enable them with. Right. Right? So for true. them to be able to look around and see in their lives the people that matter to them mm-hmm. and to be able to share authentically with them and right. to thank them and to cultivate those relationships in a deep way. Right? Those are the things that create happiness. With the masculine, I would say, is associated more with anxiety and yeah. kind of projecting maybe too far into the future and, and worrying more about the future. And the feminine could be maybe just more dwelling on the past and that's mm-hmm. where the, the depression can come up. So yeah, striking that that balance between both is kind of the the goal, I would say. But again, of course, like you you will have times where you're just you find yourself stuck in one or stuck in the other. And so it's giving yourself like grace throughout that. And it's kind of like the the practice of meditation is like acknowledging, okay, this is where I am and not attaching like a story to it, not being reactive to it, but just being like, okay, this is where I am now and this is where I'm going to work to be. And yeah, just just allowing yourself to be where you are and and going from there. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way to describe balance with mm-hmm. the yoga practice of that sun and moon balance. Another one of your specializations as a yoga instructor is in chair yoga. Mm-hmm. And I'm a bit curious about that. What is chair yoga? And how can it be useful for those in jobs where they're mostly sitting all day? From what I know about it, I've heard it can be very helpful for people who live a more sedentary lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I haven't had too many opportunities since my training to, to teach it. But I mean, the thing with chair yoga is it's so... It's so similar to to just yoga, but I mean, you could really take like any sort of regular yoga posture and just do it from a chair, whether it's <laughs> sitting or, you know, you could be standing up and just like holding on to, to the back of, of your chair or whatever. And it's very, it's very helpful for, it's helpful for anyone, but uh, especially, yeah, those who are just living more sedentary lifestyles and and those who are maybe less able-bodied or, yeah, in the, sort of the, the elderly population. Because I, I, I really appreciate chair yoga for the reason that it... Because I feel like so many people don't do yoga because they feel like they can't or mm-hmm. they or that it's for like a specific category of people yeah so having it be such like an accessible thing like that uh I think is I just really appreciate it for that reason and and also it it feeds into I think the idea that or the 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 perspective that I have that yoga isn't just 
about getting into these like postures and like doing it uh for for the physical aspect because like in chair yoga you're not it's, there's really nothing crazy going on <laughs> and like it's definitely more of a gentle practice mm. but well actually I shouldn't even say that because there are times when I do chair yoga where I'm like absolutely just shaking and, <laughs> and just like sweating but yeah it's it's the reinforcing the the idea that yoga isn't purely the the physical it in and Um, I think a lot of people stray from it as well, like practices like chair yoga or even yin yoga, which is definitely focuses on the more feminine side of things. It's purely like groundwork and you're, you're maybe doing five postures throughout like an hour practice. Um, and you're, you're really holding those postures for three to three to five minutes to really like allow yourself to to relax and and the muscles to to relax and people really kind of avoid those and I've heard it from people uh, who are like yeah I know I'll, I'll probably do it one day but I just I the idea of like staying still for that long is just mm-hmm. sounds awful yeah. <laughs> and they're like and I'm like yeah and and you probably need that the most <laughs> yeah I find when I do yoga that staying still is the hardest for me personally mm-hmm. yeah like that's so interesting I guess everybody has a different like what they can handle like doing the more physical part for myself and for a lot of people I know it's like there's no problem with that but sometimes I actually skip the part at the end of the video <laughs> where you have to lay down and I'm trying to get better at that because I'm like especially when it comes to that sun moon balance it's like the rest is the most important. Um, mm-hmm. And I was recently reading about how, like, it's quite obvious that one of the most important parts of physical exercise is the recovery. Mm-hmm. If you don't take that time to recover and rest, nothing's going to build. But yeah, we definitely get obsessed with the physical part sometimes, for sure. This CRPP, Critical Reflective Practice Project, was something that that unified that group and again sort of revealed to me the power of a community of practice when individuals are committed to a common purpose and have a common objective of trying to establish something in their practice it not only enabled us so it's something that I have maintained to a certain extent maybe not as effectively Mm -hmm. as I did during that year Mm -hmm. but the ways in which we exchanged information enabled me to be able to incorporate something I had wanted to incorporate but didn't know how. But having that real-time, continual engagement with these expert teachers, expert uh, educators, enabled me to sort of overcome a hurdle that I had not been able to overcome. And I was able to build something in one of my labs that I wasn't able to do before. And we were really just able to be there to support each other because education is a very challenging, emotionally uh, involving experience that can involve ups and downs. And so we were really able to provide a support network for each other as well. That community of practice just resonates so much with me about that. And almost like that beehive mentality that you're able to have when you're working with people, it's infectious. It's so inspiring to be around and you want to do more about it. And if I'm not mistaken, O-Cube 
has uses the a B as a symbol too, does it not? <laughs> it does, yes, which uh, resonated for me in another interesting kind of way. So when I first encountered O-Cube, much of the, the letterhead uh, upon which the rules and the page was written had the logo of uh, bees in a hive, suggesting the hive mind. And what it really, you know, impacted on me in a way that uh, when I then encountered the song by Blind Melon, uh, the song No Rain. No Rain. That's a, one that, I'm, you know, maybe people of a certain age would recognize right away when it comes on. Uh, but it, even more in particular was the video for that song because I'm of that age where videos in songs were almost as important as the songs themselves. Um, and in that video, for those of you of a certain age, you know the song I'm talking about, there's a, a little girl who's dressed yeah. in a bee costume at the beginning of the video, and she does a little performance on the yes, stage. I remember. And yeah. uh, isn't the performance isn't no. well received. <laughs> And then she goes on a journey walking through uh, the streets of a a town, of a city, and still is met with strange looks by all the people around her. Uh, But then at the end of the video, she walks into this field. Uh, I believe she opens these gates, walks into this big field, and there are, you know, all of these people dressed in bee costumes dancing around in the field. And so it's, you know, I must say that it's maybe a strange metaphor, but I am kind of like that little girl <laughs> dressed in a bee costume who was able to find, uh, yeah, find my people when I found O-Cube. Yeah. 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 It's really important. And I'm glad you did because those are, have imparted some valuable lessons for you about how you self-reflect about the things that you do and what you're about and how you can foster that and perhaps grow that in other people as well. When we consolidated those three days and how we're forming more of that teamwork or methodology behind the things that that you can do within the room, were there any standouts for you that helped how you would perceive your year Or what were your thoughts and feelings at the end of day three about what the next leg of the journey was? I'd say by the end of day three, I was pretty comfortable with everybody in the class. Like even the people who I didn't really know, I was was getting excited to kind of like spend more time with everybody and embark on like the journey that was in front of us. And I was also just very curious. I had no idea what each day would bring no idea what we'd be doing what I would have to do what our class would have to do was that weird to get used to oh yeah yeah oh yeah Yeah. (laughs) it was kind of scary the adventure and learning is a a foreign concept perhaps right yeah because you were so used to those expectations laid out well in advance and where the whatever the textbook could bring you (laughs) to as well yeah yeah I would say, especially on the third day when we did an activity where we had this rope and we were all standing in the circle and all kind of connected, we had to learn to trust each other by stepping back and leaning on each other when if one person were to like stand up, then you felt the effects of the change in the group. So it was kind of physical metaphor for just seeing how one little thing can affect a whole group of people in either a positive or negative way. And then after we had experienced that and felt the true meaning of the circle, then we all sat down and we had to write something that we would bring to the group every single day. 
So it was kind of cool seeing what everyone thought their quality was that we could bring and then just seeing throughout the whole semester of how they displayed those things was super cool. So it was kind of just a cool, memorable thing and you could always look at that in the classroom as they were displayed. Yeah, it's kind of nice to be able to have a chance to sort things out, to take three days to be able to have a better look at what it is that we can bring and what we can honor in other people and finding successful ways to communicate and focus on the positives and that almost like an oasis in a way and keep it where the things that take place in the room are, are important and they're worth safeguarding and making sure things go well. And as you were both alluding to in different ways is you can measure and see where other people are and just to make sure they're not left out and they can be part of those things and they can come in and make that work. Often we feel like we don't leave ourselves room for failure because we have this, sometimes we have these notions that we call perfectionism that doesn't allow for any sort of failure or room for failure, right? Because, you know, failing just means we're just incompetent. Well, it's not true. We're just, we just have to try. We have to make our strongest efforts to do well. And, you know, we're lear learning new things and we have to be patient with ourselves, we have to be able to know that in time, we're going to get better at those things. There's just moments in time that we're going to have so many more moments of success later on. So learning through our failure provides us with some of the most incredible learning that we need just about anything. But we can also use other things like thought exercises and, and that reframing that I was mentioning, but also giving yourself thanks. And you can do that many different ways and you can do that by even journaling a lot of people find success in journaling and i'd highly encourage people to do that the importance of reframing and gratitude journaling is helpful because failure can put us in a really dark place sometimes in a narrow state of mind and being able to reflect on and reframe those thoughts allow us to move forward with a better understanding of ourselves and really that's everything you know we, we can't always feel comfortable and sharing about things outwardly and journaling allows for that to leave your body and your mind and to be put down on that paper and then it also helps in the reflection of those things afterwards as well you know sometimes we just got to give ourselves a day or two then you can revisit those things and often you look at those things differently Minimizing distractions and unnecessary, unnecessary time wasters is really important. That's your phone. Oh my goodness. There's no greater distractor or time waster than your phone. I, I don't have to tell you. You already know that, right? And perhaps you can prioritize loving self-care to heal where you may be wounded by failure or otherwise instead. So be mindful about the things that you're doing and be aware of the things that are taking you away from yourself and replacing them with better things in your own life. Yeah, so my dog, I was in a, I was sort of in an area where the tree line, both tree lines were very close together. It was mm -hmm. sort of more of a corridor and... 
I just heard my dog barking close by. What time so of year I, was this? Uh, this was in June, okay. early mid, early June. Okay. I was just planting. I had my music on, and uh, I heard Barney barking. So I looked up, and like just right about twenty meters from me, Barney and like a big skinny, big but skinny black bear were were nose to nose, oh, basically man. like just. Oh. And so I have a feeling, I didn't see how they got to that point, but I kind of have a feeling the bear was coming out of the tree line towards me right. and Barney intercepted because they were like okay. right in line with me yeah. and just like right like in the middle between me and the tree line. Because usually, usually, you know, like Barney would bark from far, like far away. He wouldn't be up, no. up close with, to an animal. So yeah, so they were barking, he was barking and the bear was like looking super aggressive. He was not scared <laughs> at all. So I felt like with like my bear training sort of, I felt that it was the best idea to kind of walk towards um, them and more on Barney's side and just get the bear's attention. Say, hey bear, like, yo, I'm here too. <laughs> like yeah. try to see if I could, if the presence of me would would be enough to scare him away mm -hmm. and that wasn't the case he came like instant like looked at me and was like yep i'm going going for her and wow. came like instantly towards me and wow. that's when barney so i was up on, i got up on a log and started screaming which is the, the way to roll with black yeah. bear right that's yeah. a very typical uh and important response that normally is very effective yeah yeah so exactly so i i kind of at the same time as he started i was like okay i'm gonna get up on this stump i'm gonna scream at the bear uh -huh. and like wave it around and but at mm -hmm. the same time barney like so the bear didn't really care it was kind wow. of coming towards me super quickly so interesting happened super fast barney circled the bear kind of once or twice and like got him led him towards the opposite direction basically like yeah. the bear was being circled and he looked kind of confused for a second and then chased barney the opposite direction away from me so that then i dropped all my stuff like it was it was definitely the scary like it was the worst experience moment of my life like the scariest and like most angry and fearful and most pain that i've felt in my chest ever like watching a bear chase your dog and mm. and catch your dog so i was chasing them i dropped everything wow. instinctually which you know was a mistake Fight or flight right yeah so i was the bear had barney by the neck wow. and uh you know, I was looking at my dog and the, like I was so close. I was seeing his face and I was like, oh, my God, he's going to die any second. So I was on top of the bear, Nuts. like punching it, like hitting it with a wow. log, like hit doing because I dropped my shovel because I was like thinking about chasing them as fast as I could. I just instinctually like dropped everything. So I didn't have like a weapon at all when I got to the bear. So I was screaming yeah. at the top of my lungs, like just hoping someone would come and just like trying everything pulling on its ears like punching it in the eye like wow you hitting. even pulled on its ears yeah <laughs> yeah i was at the point where i was like okay hey, i'm just gonna try to pry its mouth open wow. to get it out but then that's when one of my best friends Brittany, and then our other friend lucas they heard they had heard me screaming and they made it to where i was and yeah. lucas had his shovel so lucas came right up and just like hit he's a much stronger than I am and had, had a good shovel so he hit the bear between the eyes with his shovel and the bear was stunned for a second and let go of Barney and I was able to get him so into the intense. truck yeah super crazy so intense. yeah super crazy like, like the hair sticking up on my arms right now listening <laughs> yeah. to this so, yeah. 
Yeah. Yes, it was a crazy experience. And through experience, I've been to most of these spots in this lake, and I knew that this is where we needed to go for the greatest level of safety, because I can't predict how this cumulus nimbus cloud will act, but more times than not, they're associated with super heavy rain, hail, lightning, and at its worst, tornadoes. So it just made sense to be ready for it. And because I saw how it was building, how quickly it was building too, that I had a feeling that it might be a multi-cell storm. And essentially those are storms that have some organized structure uh, making their lifetime longer. And that can produce very, very high winds. And so it's raining as we're getting set up. So I got Jen and Jeff set up and got their tent up and I got a tarp set up for myself and I got some soup put on and I wanted to get some nutrition in because I really had an odd feeling about how things would be. And soup's a little bit easier to consume and it's nurturing and life-giving that way. And so as the soup was cooking underneath the tarp and they're, they're in their tent, I set up my tent as well. Then I called them out and we, we had soup and we could see lightning's coming closer and you know I mean we all kind of know this as kids well perhaps not all of us but fairly common is that when you hear thunder and you count you know your Mississippis that it's the distance that the storm is away right so lightning then thunder counted out how many Mississippis and then that's the distance there's really no true signs to that but it just is a bit of a marker to just kind of gauge things as best as you can. So anyways, it's not many Mississippis away is I guess the point that I'm trying to make. So soup was finished, that's packed away. And I went through some instructions about what would be best if things really became very intense and we need to look at the ways in which we need to respond to lightning and how to do that correctly and to do that with the least amount of stress as possible. And so I instructed them that they should be quite ready to have their rain gear to be put on quickly, that they would also put on their PFD, their personal flotation device, and just full-on rain gear. And also they were provided with waterproof rubber bags that I asked them to also have with them. And so I explained to them what would happen if we needed to go and find and seek out a greater place of comfort uh, and for safety, which was in a bit of a gully, which is away from some of the more exposed rocks and from the taller trees and kind of away from that, kind of on the shoulder of the spot where we're staying. And uh, so anyways, sure enough, I had to ask them to, to get out. And you know why I had to ask them to get out? Because the lightning was so, so bright and so close that I could see the ozone or the flare up before actually seeing the bolt being ignited. So it's time, right? So sure enough, got them out of the tents and over uh, into the shoulder and also separated far enough just in case lightning was to go through hopefully just one person 
uh, not all three. So there can be someone who could care, someone who can actually use the satellite phone to call someone for help. So that, that it, all those instructions are given. They knew how to operate the safety equipment. They knew where the first aid kit was and all that sort of stuff. So sure enough, um, you know, they were separated out and it was nerve wracking because you could see trees that were being hit on the other side of the lake. Um, the lake wasn't super big, but I guess a medium sized lake. And also they were crouched down almost like a, a ball because, uh, I don't see the point really of why you would want electrical charge to go all the way through your feet and your entire body, then to escape out the top where you're better off being far smaller so it can move its way through you much quicker. And also on top of the uh, rubber waterproof bags as well. Anyways, sure enough, uh, I didn't feel good about what was going on. I don't know if many people have heard this before. I know I'm not very interested to hear it again, but it really is an audible sound of like a train coming in that's in motion. And I could hear that then in the distance and you could see almost like this wall cloud or it's like it drops down lower from the center of this already low cloud that's almost on top of us. And so I had to make a decision and it was a gut call and I'm really, really thankful I did. I always have flat webbing with me and the tensile strength is excellent and I always carry more than I'll ever need. But you know, who knows if another group of people require some help in some way. I've come to realize you never know those things. So it was such an odd thing having to attach a harness system around them and then securing them with a bit of distance away from a tree. Because sure enough, there was a tornado on the other side of the lake and the winds were so high that things were starting to fall around us. And I tied myself last and I will never forget supermaning and that's what I've come to, to call it as like this little superhero moment you know I, I guess it's because everyone ended up being okay in the end but I was actually airborne my feet my hands nothing was touching the ground and it was the weirdest thing looking over at these two people who were also lifted up off the ground and uh, probably airborne who knows probably not much more than I don't know five, 10 seconds, something like that. And sure enough, this tornado that uh, hit down, touched down on the lake, worked its way uh, across the lake and uh, left our vicinity. It was an absolute uh, incredible, uh, incredible moment. And uh, I've come to realize many things, as I mentioned to you about these lessons that I've learned through these things is that it felt all okay in the end. My heart rate never went up or not very much. I gave myself uh, opportunity to think, to strategize, to take the course of action that seemed best, to allow for people to understand what was going and to be calm, cool, and collected for them, to reassure them as well. And my understanding, as I mentioned to you uh, earlier about... Uh, that Peterson First Guide to Clouds and Weather by Day and Schaefer, 
I'm so thankful I religiously studied this book, essentially this pocket guide, because it allowed me over time to identify all the necessary clouds I needed to be able to start predicting things in ways that are best for everyone involved for, uh, for their health and safety. Right. So, wow. Great story, Terry. You know, it's, uh, when we think about stories that are that powerful and, uh, you know, things that speak to personal experience, those are the types of things that grab people's attention. Those are the things that help you to kind of revisit some of those embedded teachings uh, that are so powerful. So when things have real world applications and you're able to take a story that comes from real life personal experience and to be able to then take that apart and to be able to take the components out and to explain to them that this is why we learn the things that we learn because this was something that not not just saved my life that day but helped me to kind of safeguard you know the well-being of uh, the other people that were with me and i think those those are the things that really 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 stay with people for a long time We've enjoyed so many hikes together. We've discussed so many different things. And during the writing process for you, you'd spoken about the inner critic or that hyper-perfectionist mindset. Mm -hmm. Could you tell your listeners about that? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I'll say a lot of the inspiration for writing certainly has come from those many hikes that we've shared over the years in beautiful Northern Ontario. And there's something about being in nature that definitely well, there's many things about it that definitely inspires the mind to come to a more grounded place and to find a lot of meaning and it really inspires my work and with that being said a lot of the times when I've gone out into nature or in meditating in general or getting into my writing groove you realize again that the spiritual side is connected with the writing side mm -hmm. and writing in many ways is about kind of working out knots that's how I like to think of it sometimes that are in the mind and kind of making things a bit more neat throughout my life there's been many different stages of what that inner work has looked like and the inner critic I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate we all have it some people more than others yeah I think the more you care <laughs> the more you're likely to have an inner critic because the inner critic it's true kind of nitpicks and says oh everything can always be better however the inner critic is not loving there's a difference so you can still I've learned over time that you can still want things to be better and to care but you don't have to be so punchy and hard on yourself about it and you can kind of come from a more self-compassionate lens the inner critic likes to just put you down for feeling that way and make you feel like there's something wrong with you for never being good enough and so a lot of the inner work that I've done is realizing that, hey, it's really great that I want to make a difference, but I need to know when that voice in my head is becoming critical rather than loving. And there's a very fine line. It's so hard to know in hindsight that there'll be moments that we go through where we stumble and where that inner critics mean, like, come on, get it together. Yeah. Like, how dare you stumble on that? Or. Yeah. You know, you should be really going this direction instead. 
but it's to know it's like okay it's to actually give that pause and to know that this is kind of like that what we we often discuss and thrive is the uh, failing forward mindset that relates yeah. to that yeah. that there are things that we just need to work through to be able to get to that to that other place within ourselves and to know that we are on the right journey and we're going in the direction that we need to be on and to find greater trust in that yeah absolutely and the hyper perfectionist and inner critic mindset when you fail makes a really big deal out of it and kind of tells you that it's the end of the world and that there's something it might sound very dramatic because Mm -hmm. it is because it's really it's an exaggeration of reality right when the reality is that failures are those small sort of stepping stones and they are very painful and you do need to feel the feelings associated with it Mm -hmm. but then after that you're free to keep going right and the thing i've learned too over time is that applying this concept to my life has made huge shifts because the inner critic and the perfectionist mindset can get you so much in your head that you waste mm-hmm. all of this time. And I don't say waste in the sense that I regret it, but I say it in the sense that, you know, our time on earth is limited. And if we're always in our head about things, then we're missing mm-hmm. out on life. And putting it into that perspective for me has just allowed me to remind myself that I want to make the most out of my time. And it's not self-loving for me to be in my head when I could be out living. Right. And I think in a way that would impede something that you like to talk about is flow state yeah. and it can interrupt that process as well. So really there has to be a bit of a reconciling of those to be able to be in a writer's flow state. Yeah. They always say, and you've said this in many different ways before, that the first mountain is the hardest to move. Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to get into a state of flow, it's always initially getting out of your head and taking those first couple steps those are always the most difficult. It's like waking up in the morning. It's like getting up at 6 a.m. when you really don't want to, but then two hours later, you know it was a great decision Mm -hmm. versus if you just stay in bed. So really just reminding yourself that it's only these next 15 minutes that are going to maybe suck getting Mm -hmm. out of my head. But then after that, it's amazing how you just can lose track of time and space completely when you're immersed in something that you absolutely love doing. I spent a lot of time in high school amusing over where I would like to see my future because I don't want to say it felt bleak. It certainly felt disconnected and I didn't feel a lot of meaning from the things that I was studying in high school. So I wanted to spend my time more productively. So as someone was droning on from the front of the room, I would draw the things that I wanted to do or the places I wanted to hang out. And I also made um, a master list of the things that I would do and see and so on. And so I really did take my time on that, that list. And, uh, well, I actually have shivers thinking about it. So anyways, in high school, I I lost that list though. And, uh, many, 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 many moons later, I, uh, ended up with this blue bin, you know, one of those uh, really big storage blue bins that you get from whatever hardware store. And my mom and dad came up uh, to visit and they were dropping off the last bin of my stuff from the home that I grew up in. 
And I was looking through the bin and it was so nostalgic for me because a lot of those things were mementos to my past that had resonance in them. And there was this old uh, baseball hat. And uh, so I used to play a lot of baseball at a very high level when I was younger. And uh, one of our uh, main competitors at the time, so they were called the Brockville Bunnies. And uh, anyways, I had a Brockville hat and I found my list. It was tucked in the brim of the hat. It's interesting because I guess my young self knew my future self would probably lose it. But if I left it, was something else that was important to me that I guess it just, my younger self knew I would hold on to it. And I opened up the list and it was quite extensive. And it was amazing that the vast majority of my list I had accomplished. And the last one on the list was about becoming a teacher so I could provide far greater meaning to students' lives from a very different perspective. And that was the day I walked across the stage to pick up my degree to teach. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a really nice memory. We really can activate those things within ourselves by putting them out into the world. Even though the list was lost, it doesn't mean that I didn't pursue it any less, right? Because those are the things that are inspiring, the things that I think that are important, that are worth doing. They're the things that bring great happiness and joy to my life. And satisfaction enables me to feel self-confident, to, to have a higher self-esteem, right? And I think those are really important basic parts of life that we all would like, you know, and to, to trust yourself. So making these things and these things that are inspired, like making a list even and having a record of those things is really helpful. It just means you're a step closer to actualizing those things that you've been dreaming about. Thank you for tuning in to Thriving Perspectives for the final episode of 2023. As we wrap up this episode in the year, the team at Thrive Enabling Potential wants to express our heartfelt gratitude to each one of you. Your support, engagement, and shared moments have made this year truly remarkable. If you found value in our discussions, don't forget to leave a positive review and click the follow button to stay tuned for more enlightening content. For a deep dive into our world, visit our website and connect with us on social media. If a particular episode resonated with you, share it with someone you believe might find inspiration in it. Your thoughts and suggestions fuel the thriving spirit of this community, so feel free to drop a comment or reach out with your ideas. As we bid farewell to this year, I want to wish you a joyous holiday season and a fantastic start to the new year. Until we meet again in the new year, take care and keep on thriving. Mm -hmm.